Welcome to the MOH Podcast. This is Jim Patton. I'm your host. Glad to have you here today. We're going to pick up where we left off last week, uh, in a sense. Uh, the, the last two weeks, Winky has talked about uh, four basic needs of humans. He broke that up into two sessions. Uh, today's session is going to be part one of two. Um, I've kind of looked at part two. I'm not sure how I'm going to put that together. The tapes are kind of wonky, so I'll, I'll try to fix the second one as best I can. Uh, I was able to clean this this one up really really well, though, so this one should sound pretty good, and you'll be able to hear it all right. And uh, this is going to be counterfeits. Uh, I think I think the tape might have been labeled uh, counterfeit spiritual. Uh, I, I, I actually I don't remember. I didn't look at too well, but it's it's counterfeits for the four basic needs that were covered last week and the week before. So uh, oh, there's my cat chiming in. Uh, so we're going to be uh, covering two of those four today and try to get the, the next two next week. So uh, if you haven't listened to last week's, uh, the last two weeks, it would be good to listen to those first, but uh, not totally necessary because Winky does give a quick, brief review for the first you know five minutes or so uh, of what those were. So get ready for four counterfeits, uh, the first two, two of uh, first two counterfeits of four, part one of two in this series. Uh, counterfeits of the four basic needs. Uh, and remember, the devil is a copycat. So as Winky gets ready to go with this one, I hope you're ready because uh, we're going to start it right now. Here we go. The areas we dealt with this morning, I'm going to do in review for the purposes of, of uh, reinforcement. But unfortunately, I didn't erase it off the board. So I'll just leave these up here. We have looked at four basic ways uh, that God has planned and designed into man, which give uh, God really uh, this whole base of working and ministering with us. And tonight, I'd like to take you through four fundamental counterfeits of these four things that took place in what we could call the first counterculture. Uh, we have looked at, in brief, and let's see how good your review is, these four basic needs. Could somebody give me a brief working definition, please, of uh, the Bible word agape? Disinterested, but that's a big word. What does that mean? Oh, that's beautiful. All right. That's, a, that's the way they defined it about 100 years ago. In the scriptures, I have a little bit of a, a breakdown of agapeo in pre-biblical Greek. It had a very uncertain etymology, but it often it meant no more than to be satisfied with something, to receive, to greet, to honor in terms of external attitude, seeking after something, desiring someone or something relating to an internal attitude. The verb was often used to denote regard, friendship, sometimes sympathy between equals, and it took on the meanings of to prefer or to set one good or aim above another or to esteem one person more highly than another. That's pre-biblical Greek. So, uh, I know a little Greek. He runs a delicatessen shop down the road. Now, 
in the, in the New Testament and in Jesus' time, of course, the, the two words, agape, was put into uh, sharp contrast with the other word, which was eros. Eros was the dominant word of Greek culture. I'll give you a little contrast here, just in review, before you look at the next one. Eros was a general love of the world that sought satisfaction wherever it could. That's what Eros was. Agapeo, on the other hand, was a love which makes distinctions, choosing and keeping to its object. Eros, then, would be satisfied with anybody. Eros could pick anybody up and go, hey, you know, tonight it's you and I. But Agapeo would say, no, only this person and this person alone. Uh, eros was determined by a more or less indefinite impulsion towards its object. You were grabbed by Eros. You walked along and Eros went boom, and you went ha. Ah! You know, that was Eros. But Agapeo was a love which was a free and decisive act, and it was determined by the subject who loved. Uh, eros was something that grabbed you, like somebody, like Snoopy leaping down off the top of his a doghouse, like that. This other one was something that started in a choice you made, and it was determined by the object, by the subject. And then eros, in its highest sense, was used of the upward impulsion of man, of his love for the divine. It was that tremendous thrust that took him upwards. And then that's in its highest possible sense in Greek. And agapeo related to the love of God, to the love of the higher lifting up the lower, to elevate the lower above. And then Eros sought in others the fulfillment of its own life's hunger, where it had need to look to others for fulfillment. But agapeo must often be translated to show love. It is a giving, active love on the other's behalf. And there's a, a neat little word connected to this. It's agapetos, which can be applied to a thing which is right or a person who is dear, and it is used above all of an only and precious child. That's uh, some of the meanings of this incredible word agape, which we gave a simple definition of, an unselfish choice for the highest good. And we warn, it is possible to use this word agape to take your choice, your highest choice, and give it away to somebody other than God. Then we looked at wisdom, what did we say about wisdom from the scriptures? It is the thing which must be sought. Like a hidden treasure, how important is it? It is of supreme importance. When a person becomes a Christian, when you give your life to Jesus Christ, you are to seek wisdom. We call love and wisdom the conditions of happiness, of peace, of unity, of agreement, of harmony. We said without a common unselfishness and a common source of understanding, there will be no peace in the world. And you can see why God says there is no peace to the wicked. As long as you live to please yourself and your life is ruled by selfishness, as long as you do not come to God and get His wisdom on things, you thoroughly deserve a rotten life because that's what you'll have. And then we looked at two others. We said that power is essential to sustain man, that we lived with a constant input of power, whether it was chemical, food, or nuclear, thermonuclear from the sun, and that man could not survive unless there was a constant input into his life. He said what was true with the world is also true in the spiritual realm. We need somebody bigger than us 
to make an investment in our lives in order to survive spiritually. And then, fourthly, we looked at worship. We asked this question, what does the word worship mean? What essentially is an act of worship? We said this, it is the tension between what you are and something which you value and prize much higher and more beautiful than yourself that you'd like to be like. And that are those four basic needs. Now, we're going to ask the Lord to help us tonight because we're going to look at four counterfeits and I ask you to think about these during the afternoon. And I want to take you to four suggestions of alternate uh, counterfeits in this area. I also said this morning that if you do not find in Jesus Christ the answer, the only basic answer to your needs by going to Him for love, by going to Him for wisdom, to Him for power and to Him for worship, to go to the Godhead for all of these things, then you will go somewhere else. And there are kids who sit in churches whose these needs not met, they do not turn to Christ, they try to seek them in other situations, and I make simple promise, if you do not go to Jesus and have those needs met in Him, you will be disappointed, you will go somewhere else, you will, uh, you will get into a counterfeit. What is funny is that if these counterfeits we're going to look at now, if you get into one of them, it'll only be a matter of time before you're into all four. The first one I want to look at uh, what was the first thing I said to you about the devil? Do you remember? The devil is a copycat. So he knows the way God made us. We have to have those things. We need love. We need wisdom. We need power. We need something to worship. And he can't just take those away. Can you imagine a world without any love at all? Would you like to live in a world like that? Where there was total selfishness and nobody ever cared or thought about or accepted or love one other person other than themselves? Would you like to live in a world like that? Could you live in a world like that? In a world where everybody had no wisdom at all? They were just crazy? It was a full-on cuckoo's nest every morning? Would you like to live in a world where there was less and less power? A world where there was nothing to give yourself to bigger than yourself? Satan's not... He's, he's cunning, but he's not, he's not dumb. He's subtle and he's cunning. He's not wise. Wise means ever since the devil fell, he's never been called wise. But he knows these things must be replaced. So let me give you some alternatives for these things that I think came down on our generation during the first counterculture. The first uh, pick I'd have for counterfeit would be this one. Sexual immorality. Now the reason why I have to say sexual immorality and not just immorality is because there's a lot of other kinds of immorality that are not sexual. And it's customary for people to say today, well, you know, this man... Uh, says, well, I beat my wife and I cheat and I steal and I kill, but at least I'm not immoral. There's a special form of immorality, but it's a substitute for biblical love. And the sad thing about it is this. Many, many kids are driven to immorality in sexual areas 
because they have never, ever met anybody who really cares for them, who really loves them. One of the people in the scriptures that we could take a brief look at in passing here was David, a man who, uh, he began as a, as a boy who really had very little going for him at all. He had everything against him but destiny and everybody against him, it seemed, except God. David was born with all the odds stacked against him. There's a persistent Israeli rumor that maybe his mother wasn't his dad's proper wife. And uh, that seems to be borne out, interesting enough, by this passage of Scripture. Uh, David was not a bastard. He was not uh, a man who, who didn't have... Uh, his, his father was not his correct father. His father was his proper father. But it seems like from Scripture, his mother was not Jesse's wife. You'll see this by uh, looking at First uh, Chronicles 2.16. You just scribble this down. I'll read it to you, and you can check it out later. In First Chronicles 2.16, we read that David's sister's name was Abigail. First Chronicles 2.16. But in Second Samuel 17 and verse 23 we read that Abigail was Nahash's daughter. Now that's a very interesting thing. That Jesse was David's father, not Nahash. So how were they related? Obviously through their mother. And many Jews believe that David then, we can't call David illegitimate because there's no illegitimate children, just illegitimate parents. David's father was obviously Jesse, so he wasn't a bastard. He could enter into the congregation of the Lord and all these other things. But you can imagine if you're a boy and uh, you're the only boy in the household whose mother was not your, your father's wife. And being brought up in a nice Hebrew household and being, uh, you know, you'd be accepted as a son, but it caused some real embarrassment to your dad. Can you imagine what it'd be like to find that out? And, uh, you know, you're the youngest in the family for a start. And then every time your brothers are going to do something, they don't want you around because you're an embarrassment to them. And uh, you can really get bitter about that. You could say, well, man, if they don't care about me, forget it. And David could have done that. All his brothers uh, seemed con contemptuous of him. And even his dad. Do you remember when Samuel... Uh, came to the town and he called Jesse. God had told him, out of Jesse's sons, there's going to be somebody who I'm going to choose to be the king. Samuel was to come to town. He was to line up all the boys and call Jesse especially to the sacrifice and then he was to go through the sons. So Jesse had all his sons. They're all military boys. Now David came from a home. I scribbled this down. Where his brother's favorite game was probably marbles. They probably, their favorite TV program was Gilligan's Island, and their favorite musical instrument was the bass drum, played with one stick. And that's the kind of background he came from. And yet this kid had the speed of an O.J. Simpson. He had the hand and eye coordination of a Jimmy Connors. Musical genius, been seldom matched in more than 120 generations of singers and songwriters. And you put a kid like that in the middle of a house like that, and you've got a formula for tragedy. And the dad, can you imagine Jesse's lined up all the sons and he's all uh, dressed in his best suit, you know, Samuel's asked for us and all the boys are there with all their medals gleaming from the war that they've never fought, but they've been in it anyway. And they're all standing up there lined up and uh, 
Samuel comes across to pick the man who's going to be the king, and he sees this first tall, good-looking kid, and he says, well, this is surely the one the Lord's picked, and he goes to anoint him, and the Lord goes, uh-uh, not him. Samuel goes, oh, okay. Next one, then. Uh-uh. Oh. Keeps on moving down the line. Now, imagine what Samuel felt like when he got to the last son in the line. And he says, well, this, this is the one. And the Lord goes, uh-uh. And he thinks, what do you mean, uh-uh? I missed one on the line. And then there's old Jesse standing there, smiling. His little mistake is up in the hills taking care of the sheep. And then Samuel turns to him and asks this horrible question. Do you have any other sons besides these? And Jesse goes red as a traffic light. Can you imagine what's going through his mind? How did he know? How did he find that out? Oh, uh, <laughs> well, yes, we have uh, David. He's the youngest, so he's got to keep the sheep, you know. Jesse says, why don't you go? And Samuel says, go and bring him. So here's old David. He comes down. Uh, David could have really got bitter if you'd have been in that situation. Was it your fault that you were born like that? No? He could have sat up in the things and said, why do my brothers hate me, man? I, you know, I couldn't help it. But he didn't. Got his guitar and played to the sheep and praised the Lord. He could have got all bitter and joined the local Bethlehem's Hells Angels and, you know... <laughs> Knocked around, he could have gone into a disco and become a disco musician and picked up a bunch of Nazareth uh, groupies and he could have done all of this stuff, but he didn't do that. He just went up in the hills and he learned to take his heartbreak and cast himself on God. And God heard it. And God made David the most famous, the most anointed of all kings. And David's story is a story of what happens when God goes on a man's side against all of his background, against all of his environment, against all of his hereditary. God made David great. So oftentimes people say, well, you know, I got pushed into this thing, man. I couldn't help it. It was just, you know, it was overpowered. It got me and dragged me away. You look at David and you'll know that's not true. David fell later on in his career. And the Bible is very honest. Where a man of God makes a serious mistake or a sin, the Bible doesn't bury it and put it over to the side. It brings it out, full force. David fell, but it was many, many years. Faithful service to God before that ever happened in his life. You think of all the opportunities he had to blow it in immorality before. He could have said, nobody loves me, man. I'll go and find a hooker. That's it. He didn't do it. Instead, he gave himself to God. And he learned to really love God. And God gave him a special title. Do you remember what it was? David Man greatly beloved is a man after my own heart. And that's a lesson some of you are going to have to learn. Look, you may think that you can find love in somebody else. There are girls who are single and they think, if only I can find the right guy, then that's where I'll find love. There are guys who think, it's a girlfriend I need. Lord, I need a girl, man. I have been saved a whole three months and I haven't got a girl yet. I really need one. Missionary... Kids saying, Lord, thou knowest I wishest to go to the mission fieldist, and thou mustest give me a girlist. Amen. <laughs> there are girls who pray at the end. Amen. Amen. They pray amen all the time.
David didn't do that. He could have sold out his innocence. He could have said, nobody understands me. He could have made up good rationales for why he should be immoral, but he didn't do it. Instead, he took his hurt and he took his sadness and he took his rejection and his broken heart up into the hills. And there, this one man banned on the run learned to make God his friend. And it was David who wrote these words. When my father and my mother forsake me, the Lord will take me up. And that's what you need to learn. Look, I found this. No girl, no friend, no parents, no relatives, nobody in the world can satisfy the need in your life for love other than God himself. The Father's love is the only thing in the world that will finally satisfy the human heart. Many times people marry thinking that's what they need, marriage. Marriage is useless without you knowing this. That will not satisfy you. Sexual immorality will not bring that satisfaction. There's that sad, sad song sung by Dusty Springfield. If you let me make love to you, then why can't I touch you? Sad song. And I think that's what our generation is starving to death for. Kids go from experience to experience, hoping that maybe they'll find this person will be the one, and it's not. Just left empty and burned out, and you go on to somebody else. I think of the sad days and the early days of the counterculture where little 15-year-old kids heard about, you know, if you go to San Francisco, gentle people with flowers in their hair. They said, oh, isn't that nice? You know, be gentle people. They wouldn't kick me around my, like my father and mother do. And they all arrived up there, and there weren't people throwing flowers and kisses. They were throwing rocks and bottles and knives. And the hippies took that dream. They buried it in a and Kaufman went down the center of San Francisco and said the whole thing's dead. We ought to learn from that. You'll never find love outside of Jesus Christ. Father wants to show his love to you. He wants to show how much he loves you. The most beautiful thing Jesus said is the Father himself loves you. He himself loves you. I remember one time... Uh, when I mentioned to you that when I was a young Christian, I ran into a group of kids who really loved God. And it was neat because we didn't date. We didn't think about dating. We didn't have time to date. There was too much evangelism going on. But we would go out in mobs, you know, and we'd, uh, our biggest problem was getting home on time because we were out in the streets at 2 in the morning witnessing and stuff. And we were having Bible studies in each other's houses till ungodly hours in the morning. And, Parents were saying, where are you? Well, we're in the middle of a Bible study, man. We got to, you know, it's really rough. So one time there was this really nice girl. I'd spent a lot of time with her and neither of us ever thought this, you know, we're going to get married or anything. It wasn't even like that. It was a very close friendship. And one day in one camp, uh, she told me that a good friend of mine and of hers had proposed to her and that she was going to get married. And uh, she was crying when she said it. And uh, it really hurt me for some reason, because though we knew that we'd never marry each other, we had such a close friendship that it looked like this is going to be it. It's going to be a whole new ball game from then on. So I was most uh, discouraged for no good reason. And I remember going out under the trees and, and uh, just really taking it. It was a personal agony to me. I couldn't understand why I felt like that. And as I was uh, opening the scriptures, uh, God gave me a scripture. It was a very interesting one. And he said, uh, uh, he even signed it with my name, put it in there so I'd know. 
It said, uh, Are the consolations of God small with thee? Why doth thine heart carry thee away? And what do thine eyes wink at? It's a wild scripture. And this is what he said to me. Don't you understand that when you go through your greatest pain and your greatest hurt, at that time I can be more loving to you than, and more, reveal more of my love to you than any other time in all of the world? And if you'll only take this step to me, I will show you just how much I love you. And I've learned that. I've learned that when you get hurt, the person you go to is Jesus Christ. You go to him and let him take you to the Father and let the Father wrap his arms around you. You watch what happens. It's a beautiful thing. You miss it and go somewhere else. I promise you emptiness. Promise you. All right? So effective has this substitution been of agape for sex that today in our culture, the majority of people in the West, love is a synonym for sex. To make love now means to have sexual intercourse with. It means nothing more than that. The tragedy of this is that it drops out the whole sacred inner reality of which sex is just the shadow. You lose the substance, the whole reality of this thing. And uh, counterfeit love then is substitute agape, a cheap copy without reality, expressed in a hundred shades of fornication, adultery, masturbation, exhibitionism, homosexuality, and various other kinds of sexual perversion. Each one a search for some love, for some reality that can only be found in abandonment of the heart to the Father. Yes? Yeah, eros, see, eros is not a bad word in itself. But eros was made the dominant factor of Greek culture. Eros just simply means sexual or physical attraction. There's nothing wrong with being attractive. God has not said, you know, put corkscrews in your eyes and, you know, wear, uh, wear green makeup lest anybody like you. He, uh, he loves us, but the thing is when anything becomes an end in itself and takes our heart away from God, it becomes intrinsically wrong. And uh, I don't think... See, what you need to do, perhaps, is to look at Jesus' attitude to people caught in sexual immorality. We have a couple of accounts of it in the Scriptures. And I want you to turn to one now. You'll find this in the book of John. I think you'd be surprised at Jesus' attitude towards people caught in sexual immorality. If you look at uh, John chapter 8, It's a very classic story. Jesus actually meets two women in the Gospel of John, both of whom involved in immorality. And his, his dealings with them are so tender and so beautiful. There's no, uh, there's no condemnatory tone. There's no uh, bitterness or nastiness. There's none of that little shrill edge that gets in the voice like some preachers do. Immorality! You know that thing? It's not there because he understands what sexual immorality is. It is a search for reality in love that has been perverted by the devil. And he knows that that love properly belongs to the Father. Now watch what happens with this girl. Jesus goes to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he comes to the temple. The people sit down 
and they come to him, and he sits down and he teaches them. And up come the old scribes and Pharisees, brought unto him a woman taken in adultery. And when they had set her in the midst, they said to her, Master, this woman was taken in adultery in the very act. What happened to the man is a good question. Perhaps the woman was committing adultery on her own. Perhaps the Bible says, thou shalt not commit sexual immorality, girls. What happened to the guy in the very act? What were they doing? Setting it up? Took the girl, threw her down. Now Moses commands us in the law that such a person, not like us, of course, should be stoned. What do you say? Notice their compassion. As they said, tempting him that they might accuse him. What was the point? There's a bunch of people sitting around. They've heard something in the voice, in the words, in the wisdom of Jesus that says, this man cares about me. He, my life can be changed. And they come and drag him up and they say, Moses says, death penalty by stoning. What do you say? Now, what does he say? Does he stand up and say, well, look, forget Moses. I'd like to save this girl, so forget it. Then they'll go, aha, he teaches things contrary to the law. He blasphemeth, you know, and pick up rocks and stuff. But on the other hand, he says, well, what can you do? Moses was right. And they dragged the girl out and stoned her to death. They'll do it right there. It's called spoiling your message. Now, what does Jesus do? What would you do? Well, when Arthur Katz came to this passage... That young radical Jew, Marxist, existentialist lecturer, who had been reading through the New Testament that somebody had given him and became entranced with the personality of Christ. In the verse, in the passage that he was reading, that end of the page was at the point where we stopped. And he said he sat there for over an hour trying to work out what he would say if he was Jesus. Can you imagine the mental discipline of a man who would not turn the page, but sat there running through in his mind every philosophy he had ever come up with, trying to answer a question with him with his tremendous Jewish legal background, knew exactly the implications of this question, until finally he had exhausted everything he knew, and he knew there was no answer to this, and they had him, and he was sorry because he knew he had really begun to admire Christ and really get in trance with them, and now he knew they had him. And there was no way he could get out. They had him in a corner, they had him legally trapped, they'd nailed him to the wall, and that was it. And he was afraid to turn the page. And he sat there with sweat running down, <laughs> scared to turn that page. And he, all he saw was this. Jesus stooped down with his finger right on the ground, and he said, I knew why he was writing on the ground. He was stalling for time. And then can you imagine, he said, after an hour, having exhausted every philosophy he'd ever known, he turned the page to meet the tragedy that was going to come. And he read these words. So when they continued asking him, he lifted up himself and he said to them, he that is without sin among you, let him first cast a stone at her. And again he stooped down and wrote on the ground. And Arthur Katz said, when I read those words, I knew Jesus Christ was God. 
Nobody could answer a question like that except God. Nobody. What did you write on the ground? Telephone numbers? <laughs> Incidents? Names? Addresses? What did he write? The only thing Jesus ever wrote was on sand and... You know, I wish to the Lord that I had, the only thing I'd ever written was on sand. <laughs> Having read this, the only thing he ever wrote was on sand. We don't know what he wrote, but I'll tell you the results. They which heard it, being convicted by their own conscience, went out one by one, beginning at the eldest and the most cynical, even to the last. And Jesus was left alone, and the woman standing in the midst, and a bunch of rocks lying there on the ground where they'd been dropped. And when Jesus had lifted up himself and he saw none but the woman, he said with those beautiful eyes that have eternity in them, Woman, where are your accusers? Has no man condemned you? She said to him, No man, Lord. And then he said, Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Now that's Christ's attitude to people who are caught in this tremendous bondage of sexual immorality. A genuine love, a genuine acceptance, but a strong statement. Go, I'm not going to condemn you, but don't do it again. It's finished. Over. Not go and sin less. Not go and take fewer partners this time, but go and sin no more. And that's what he says to every person who wants to follow him. Go and sin no more. Don't go back into the way you came. I'm going to give you a new life and a new chance. This is supposed to be death city right here. But instead, it's mercy city. Go and sin no more. In the scriptures, we are told that sexual immorality is to be one of the major characteristics of the last culture on earth. And I'll just give you a few scriptures. You could write these down perhaps. In Romans 1, 24 to 32, God gives us a description of the breakdown of a society. And let me just point it out like this. God has given us three very strong physical drives. One is for nourishment, that's called eating, and another one is for uh, reproduction, and that's the sexual drive. And then the third one is for self-protection, or self-defense. These are strong physiological drives. Now, in a culture where the life is not threatened, where people's lives are not in danger, and where there is enough to eat, the one that gets most out of whack when these are not regulated by the Holy Spirit is the one on reproduction. And so in a culture where the life is not threatened and where there is adequate food, the one that you'll see that gets messed up more often is sexual immorality. So it becomes a major characteristic of a culture that's departing from God. On the other hand, in the same kind of culture, if... Uh, let's take these out to their, these other two out to their uh, perversions. Instead of nourishment, we have the sin of gluttony. Now, you've heard sexual immorality preached against. How often have you heard gluttony preached against? You ever heard somebody get up, kick somebody out of church because the elder was discovered overeating? And where this one goes out of whack, self-defense, we have violence. So we have misused sex, gluttony, and violence. What is gluttony, by the way? 
How many of you think that you would recognize a glutton just by looking at him? What would he look like? Right? The gospel blimp. Good year. Right? That's what you think. Because gluttony simply means an overemphasis on food. And a glutton can be skinnier than you. The guy who died with a macrobiotic diet was a glutton. Gluttony is simply overemphasis on food. Paying too much attention to food. That's gluttony. Not being too fat. Not being just paying too much attention to food. A gourmet could be a glutton. A glutton could stand sideways and put out his tongue and he'd look like a zipper. <laughs> don't pick on all the fat people when you think about gluttony. Sometimes fat people are gluttonous. So are skinny people. Gluttony is a much wider sin than first thought of. Now, you know what Jesus said would be the sign of the last days? He said, as it was in the days of Noah, so also shall it be in the coming of the Son of Man. For men shall be eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage. And when we read Genesis, the early chapters that describe the first time when God destroyed the world, we see the world was filled with violence. I'm going to ask you a question. If you go down to the average old supermarket, you drop into a 7-Eleven or, you know, any old place, and you pick up five magazines at random, you tell me what the major themes of those magazines are bound to be. And I'll tell you about a culture that is very closely duplicating the days of Noah. Is there anything wrong with nourishment? No. Is there anything wrong with reproduction? No. Is there anything wrong with self-defense? No. These are characteristics, however, of a culture that's gone crazy, that's thrown away all its moral memories and all its controls. And each one of these is flaring out of control. If I took this one, for instance, gluttony. So I said, okay, we're going to have a show tonight. Everybody turns the lights out, a spotlight comes on. Somebody comes on with a big plate of steak. And the, to steak music, dances backwards and forwards, Every now and then lifting a little bit of the steak. See? For the finale, as the drums build up, he goes, da-da! And there's the steak, and everybody goes, da-da-da! You'd think something wrong with that culture, wouldn't you? Well, there is. That's number one. I'll give you a few more scriptures, and we will pass on. 2 Timothy 3, 6. 2 Timothy 3, 6, verses 9 and 13. 2 Timothy 3, 6, and verses 9 and 13. And finally, 1 Corinthians 6, verses 9 through to 10. 1 Corinthians 6, verses 9 through to 10. All right. That's number one. We look at that. Uh, I wish we had about a week because we could take each one of these and go into what the scriptures say, say concerning uh, sexual immorality and what the Bible says concerning giving our lives to God. But I'll just say this. Some of you in this room are involved in this. Counterfeit love. And it's a dead-end street. You can't even find it in religious things. It is so crazy today... That in religious circles, 
People who claim to be Christians justify sexual immorality. I mentioned uh, this morning about that one girl said, I love Jesus, but I shack up with my boyfriend all the time. I said, did Jesus command you to do that? She said, well, no. And I said, what does Jesus say about loving him? If you love me, keep my commandments. On that basis, do you love him? She said, I guess that's really the question. The, the crowning glory of all of them I heard was this. A guy who's a church kid, church brat, said to this girl, why don't you sleep the night with me? She said, I couldn't do that. He said, why don't you pray about it? Can you believe that? The silly thing is that most girls would. What is happening to the culture we live in? What is happening to Christian values and standards? We're buying what the world says and then trying to justify it. But when we stand before God and you stand before him whose eyes are as a flame of fire, you're going to have to give your excuses to him, not to your friends, to him. And it better be right. Now, there's a bunch of things you could say in that, but I'm not going to say it. Just say, when we look at the tragedy of what happened to David, he lost everything he had by one stupid piece of immorality, and we ought to learn some lessons from that. All right, here's your second one. We're going to look now at counterfeit wisdom. Under counterfeit wisdom, we could look at a number of movements that purport to teach uh, men and women who follow them, a way of understanding the universe, which is going to give them a tap into absolute truth. We think of things like Scientology, with its promise of clear, having the knowledge of all things. And how uh, its founder said that there are some people in the world who know everything. They're so dangerous to the world, they have to stay on yachts continually so nobody will find them and assassinate them for their knowledge. And the RAS, the IRS, caught them on the yacht. Unfortunately, they didn't know enough to know that the police were after them. But Sam, <laughs> we look at these, always have the promise. I remember of uh, the Maharishi when the Beatles, remember the first time he came over with the flowers and smile on the cover of Time magazine and all the Beatles went bananas on him and stayed with him and he came to teach TM and, and uh, he promised cosmic consciousness. said, in five years you'll have cosmic consciousness, knowledge of all things if you meditate this prescribed amount of time. In eight years you could have the promise of God consciousness, the knowledge of God. And when the Beatles first started getting disillusioned is when Sitting with him one day after meditating and chanting and doing very things for a long time, one of the Beatles said to him, he who had cosmic and God consciousness, what are we going to be doing in the future? He said, I don't know. <laughs> so I thought, well, Fubar, if you don't know, we'll forget it. So he used to following you and uh, dropped out. Except poor old George Harrison who went on in uh, other weird ideas. Here's the one I want to give you. This one, I think, is probably the dominant one that came into prominence. Here is a, a source of wisdom available to anybody at any time, at any age, will give direct and immediate access to the nature of reality. And in the scriptures, there is an ancient initiation uh, which is forbidden by biblical prophets 
In the New Testament, it is called pharmakia, from which we get the words today, pharmaceutical, pharmacy. Now, what is interesting is this. From the Tyndale New Testament, which is written in 1526, down to almost every modern-day translation, in no place is this ever translated by its primary meaning. Translators preferring to use a secondary or tertiary meaning. Now, I don't know why this is, because never at any time in history has the primary meaning of this word been more applicable than it is today. The secondary or tertiary meanings of this word often translated in Scripture by the following words, sorcery or sorceries. And then another one, witchcraft. primary meaning of this word, pharmakia, is the use of drugs to initiate an, a religious experience. And more particularly, I want to pick out the hallucinogenics. And uh, though this may be old hat to some of you, some of you may not know that the Bible specifically forbids the use of drugs. It is absolutely forbidden in Scripture. And a person who uses drugs is called uh, somebody involved in witchcraft. A person who pushes drugs uh, is also forbidden in Scripture. So I want you to write a few Scriptures down, please. Revelation 18, verses 21 to 23 the main one, and uh, you just write these others down, and then I'd like you to look at Revelation 18, 21 to 23. Revelation 9, verses 20 to 21. Revelation 9, verses 20 to 21. Revelation 21, verses 7 through to 8. 21, verses 7 through to 8. Revelation 22, verses 11 through to 15. Tremendous light of scriptures in the book of Revelation on this. And finally, Galatians 5, 19 to 21. Galatians 5, 19 through to 21. Now, the word pharmakia in Strong's, it comes from the word medication. And by extension, uh, involves magic or sorcery or witchcraft. Uh, Pharmacus, which is a derivative word, uh, comes from the word pharmacon, which is a drug or a spell-giving potion, or a druggist is called a poisoner. And by extension, a drug administrator or a magician or a sorcerer. The word pharmacos is the same as 5332, which is a sorcerer or a, dealing, a dealer in drugs. Now... This is tied in in the, in the Bible in very interesting ways. It is tied in to the practice of witchcraft and sorcery. Not at all just chemically. It is tied into the supernatural world, to occult practices. In Exodus, uh, I think it's 7-11, uh, when uh, Pharaoh called the wise man and the sorcerers, he called in men who by the use of drugs would tap into the occult world. In Jeremiah 27 and 9, God says, nor to your sorcerers which speak unto you, don't hearken to them. 
In Daniel, that's Jeremiah 27.9, in Daniel 2.2, they are mentioned in conjunction with the astrologers of King Nebuchadnezzar's realm. So they have the astrology people and the drug users there side by side. In Malachi 3.5, God says he will be a swift witness against the sorceress. And then in Isaiah 47, Malachi 3.5, the last one was, in Isaiah 47 and verse 9, and verse 12, God says he will judge this whole culture for its multi the multitude of your sorceries and uh, I'm going to give you a few statistics. I've got a bunch of other things here on divination and magic connected with this. But first I want to give you a few shocking statistics. Now these are old ones. These are done in 1973 in the latest report which came out uh, just a few months ago in one of the major news magazines. These things have, uh, some cases, tripled these figures, but I'll just give you a few of these. In this nation alone, in 1973, when the last survey was taken, this is the percentage of people in this nation who use drugs just to get high. No other reason except to get high. I'll give you the numbers first, and then I'll show you the percentage. So of 11,278,000 people in the U.S. use off-the-shelf drugs to get high every day. Another 23.5 million use prescription drugs in a non-medical sense. There aren't prescriptions, they don't need any more, now they go on just to use to get high. Over 29 million smoke grass regularly, over 6.5 million use acid or other hallucinogenics regularly. There are four and a half million people on cocaine, almost two million heroin addicts, four and a half million people sniff blue or gas or some other thing, and you can add to this 80 million regular drinkers and over 57 million regular smokers. Now this broken down comes to these statistics. Over one in 18 people use off-the-shelf drugs to get high. One in every 18 people you meet in this nation are using off-the-shelf drugs to get high every day. Over one in nine are using prescription drugs to get high. Some form of psychotropic, a mind or mood altering drug. One in seven persons in this nation smoke grass regularly. One in 27 use acid regularly. One in 45 use cocaine. One in 103 are heroin addicts. One in 45 are glue sniffers. Two out of every five are regular drinkers. Two out of every seven are regular smokers. And that was 1973. That was back then. One company alone, Hoffman Road, last year produced 16 billion Valium tablets. That's a $300 million profit. That's enough for four Valiums for every man, woman, boy, and girl in the world. 16 billion. And that's just one drug. Now listen to these words from the book of Revelation. Chapter 18, one that I asked if you could turn to and look at. The book of Revelation describes a great culture, which is called Babylon. It's a demonic culture. I said the devil is a copycat. We know that Jesus Christ has a church, and the church is called the bride. Well, the devil has a church. It's called Babylon, the harlot. She's a hooker. She's not a virgin. She's a hooker. And this is a description of some of the characteristics of this great culture that Satan is putting together. 
Scripture tells us in verse 20, 21 of Revelation 18, a mighty angel took up a stone like a great millstone and cast it into the sea. For men to splash like this, saying, Thus with violence shall that great city Babylon be thrown down and shall be found no more at all. It is a musical city. This is important, as we'll see in a minute. The sound of a millstone should be heard no more at all in thee. There are people who are working with gra grains and all of this. The light of a candle shall shine no more at all in thee. The voice of the bridegroom and of the bride shall be heard no more at all in thee. Verse 23, second part, For thy merchants were the great men of the earth, for by thy sorceries, for by thy use of drugs, were all nations deceived. This scripture ties in deception to the use of drugs in the final days. Now, the most incredible fact of those statistics that I gave you is this. This only refers to people who have admitted that they do this. This is only statistics, a census set out, do you use drugs to get high? Are you willing to admit that? Yes, I am. That's only self-admitted pleasure seekers. This does not count at all the other 303 million prescriptions that were written besides that for other medical uses. And one of the most dangerous things that happens today is that we are a chemical society and we are trying to answer problems chemically. Today in hospitals, it, it gets to be the pets. Person comes in, you haven't got time to treat them, shoot them up with chemicals, sedate them, keep them stupefied, and then go on. And horrible things are happening in medicine. We answer everything chemically, but man is more than a bag of chemicals. You can go back to biology textbooks 50 years ago. We'd start with man, it would go all the way down to the animal, and keep on going, it would stop at the viruses, and there was a line, and then came chemicals. But you pick up a biology textbook, the bottom line is chemicals. That's all you are, a bag of them reacting to your environment. Something goes wrong with the chemicals, stick some more in, it'll help. Now, I believe that Christians have got to be exceedingly careful in the area of chemicals. I'm a chemist by background, it's my training, my discipline, and I took great care to keep chemicals out of me when I worked in the lab. And uh, I think Christians use too many chemicals. We use chemicals to get up and chemicals to go to sleep, and what difference is that from the secular man? We drink too much coffee and tea, not for spiritual reasons at all. Gotta have my cup of coffee. I'm just not together unless I have my cup of coffee. That's right. Sometimes, like when I worked in Teen Challenge in New York, we had to take coffee out of the center because the addicts would make a paste about this thick and eat it and get high off it. We had to take it right out. And you say, well, that's not me. I don't need it, Brother Pratt. You stop. See what happens. <laughs> I can't stop. My parents were hooked on tea. That may seem dumb to you. When my father used to come in from work, and he'd put on the kettle and boil the jug, and he'd make a cup of tea, and if you'd asked him afterward, what have you done? He wouldn't be able to tell you. And I was speaking one time on chemicals. My mother said, oh, you, you were saying that people are going to be hooked on tea. I said, why don't you quit? I will, she said. I will. I'll show you. 
little brat, I'll show you, I'll stop. So she did, and she said it like, somebody hit her in the head with an ax. You know what that's called? It's called a drug reaction. Remember the old days when they put cocaine in Coca-Cola to get you really into the taste of Coke? And there was this weird spectacle of people running out in sub-zero weather, ripping the tops off Coke bottles, I gotta have another Coke. I really like the taste. Well, you ask yourself this question. Do chemicals regulate more of my life than the Spirit of God is pleased with? We gobble pills like, make our joints look like ball bearings. So I leave that with you. The thing I want to bring out here, though, is not just medical misuse. What I want to bring out here is a very definite tie that the hallucinogenics have with the supernatural in the occult world. And I want to give you just the name of one man who I think really sums up accurately the Bible picture of sorcery. His name is Carlos Castaneda. He's an anthropology student in UCLA. And over the past number of years, he's written a number of books, each one which in its own right has become a bestseller on the New York Times bestseller list. The first one, the time of initiations that he went through was set somewhere between 1960 and 1965. It was called The Teaching of Don Juan, The Yaqui Way of Knowledge. And what it is, this boy, uh, as he was an anthropology student at UCLA, he apprenticed himself to a Yaqui Indian brujo, a sorcerer. And this man took him out to teach him an alternate reality, the reality used by sorcerers, and used drugs and drug mixtures at precise orientations and times to introduce him to another world in which he would gain power over normal people. And uh, every year or so, I see another one of his books come out. The, uh, what was the last one? Something about the ring, the ring of power or something. But uh, he has released book after book. Now, what is funny is this. When he bought out his first book, there was a lot of debate whether or not it was actually a true story, that he'd actually met this person, or whether it was an incredibly well-written, well-constructed, fake story. But I'll tell you what happened. Over 10,000 college students went out in the desert looking for this man to apprentice themselves to. And when you read this book, if you ever do, its scary thing is it's research into the psychic world in a quasi-scientific, semi-documentary style. It's not told in a, in how could I call it, a, uh, a hyped way. It's just very casual and very documentary. And this next thing happened, and I was terrified. It's just written down. But what do you meet in this book is a doorway into an alternate universe in which drugs become a major way of entry. Uh, when he uses masculine, uh, out of a cactus, he sees one of these guides come as a blue light figure called Mascalito, who is one of his spirit guides. And what they use is drugs to introduce you to these guides and benefactors in the supernatural world. And there is where the real breakthrough comes into the supernatural world. I believe the scriptures very clearly teach that drugs can be used to open the mind to alternate dimensions, and in those dimensions, there is the habitation of demons. And what happens, sometimes things that take place 
in the drug world are not accountable by normal just chemical reactions. There are funny things that happen that do not fit into normal rationalistic explanations of the universe. And uh, this, these, uh, these, uh, these pathways, these pilgrimages he had abound with uh, dance. He's taught supernatural song. He was t uh, given a language which he was to use, though he didn't understand, as a weapon. He was, uh, some of the freaky things, one place he was told, stay here, whatever you do, do not move or you will die. It is a test. If you move, you will die. If you do not move from this place till sunset, you will live. And he stands there like this, and this witch that's after him constantly comes, trying to get him away, and he has to... He sings these songs, which he doesn't understand. It's like singing in tongues. He sings to this woman, and uh, she backs off in fright, and then it's almost sun up, it's almost dawn, and he sees the figure of, of his uh, mentor coming towards him, and the old man says, okay, you passed your test, you can leave. And he's just ready to go, and then he remembers. He was told not to leave until the sun comes up. And she says, no, I must stay. And he says, it's all right, you passed your test, you can go now. And he says, no, I must stay. And then suddenly the figure changes, and instead of his mentor, it's the witch. And there's this incredible thing where your whole life is at stake, unless you follow the instructions and you live by the rules. And that really is like the occult world. A series of rules. Violation or infraction means instant death from the beings that you're working with that are arbitrary and extremely dangerous but full of power and that if you do what they say and you make them happy they will give you power now let me tell you the truth about the occult world many many christians do not understand this why the satanic forces want human beings but let me give it to you tonight this is a secret demons do not like at all and i'll tell you anyway In the biblical picture of man, we have the Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, absolute ruler of the universe. Then, normally we think like this, then there are the archangels, these very high power beings, and then we have the ordinary angelic world, and then of course, because of the fall, the demonic world. And these beings have tremendous power. One angel went and took out an entire army single-handedly, incredibly powerful beings. And then, according to our normal way of thinking, humanity or mankind fits in here. Now has made him a little lower than the angels. But what is, and then down come the animals and then the bugs and the viruses and the, you know, the Cretans down here. Now, what we think is that this is the way it's supposed to be. And on that basis, you think, why in the world do demons pick on human beings? But that is not the biblical picture of where man was designed. There has been a space-time fall in the universe, and man has fallen. And he really has fallen, because this is where God is going to put him when he's finished with saved people. Right here. Right in the body of Christ. And you have, let's call it, redeemed humanity. This is where man was supposed to be. And in the purposes and the picture of God, and the occult world understands this, man was created to rule the universe under his creator. 
Now, I hope you get this, because it's tremendously important. Do you understand that God created you to rule the universe? That you are not just made as a blob of protoplasm that Jesus happened to take an interest in. You were designed by incredible wisdom and incredible love to share with God in the rulership of the universe. Your hair should stand on end. You should go, what? Is this true? Can it be so? It is. Turn in your Bibles to the book of Ephesians. Paul couldn't tell a lot of Christians that in the Bible because they were just too messed up. But when he got to the Ephesians, he really got excited. Because these people loved God, they followed Him, they served Him, and Paul said, i got a prayer for you that you're not going to believe. I'm going to pray that God shows you what is the hope of your calling. I'm going to pray that He reveals to you the final purposes of man. Turn to the book of Ephesians. You found it? All right. Now I'm going to show you some goodies. We can't go through the whole prayer, but uh, in Ephesians 1, turned about the last third of it, Paul is praying that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, verse 17, the Father of glory may give to you the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of Him, that the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of His calling, verse 18, and what the riches of the glory of His inheritance in the saints, and what is the exceeding greatness of His power to usward who believe, according to the working of His mighty power, Verse 20, which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead and set him at his own right hand in the heavenly places. Now here is Jesus, who is God himself, the incarnate God. About 2,000 years ago, he comes down, he takes on him the form of a man, not God disguised as man, not God pretending to be man, but God who becomes man with a real human body, with a real human mother, he is born into our world, the king of the universe. And he humbles himself to the death. He lays down his life, not just as a servant, as a slave, but he gives himself in a criminal's death in crucifixion. He lies there for three days, his body dead in the grave. And then three days later, the power of the Father, according to the promises of God, reach into the tomb. The rock rolls aside. All the Roman gods in the world are going to stop that from happening. And he comes up, boom, out into the sunlight, just like he does today when we get him in a nice little rock, put him in a tomb, hammer it closed, got Christ boxed up, we know exactly what he's like, and, and there he is, and everybody falls at his feet like dead. He comes out. The power of the Father reaches down. And he goes up like this. Now what? Can you imagine that through the galaxies? Through all the reams and reams and myriads of principalities and powers. I look at it like a giant stream like this, and he just arcs through like this, and he comes in. Can you imagine what it's like in heaven? All the angels are cheering, and he walks in. Bonham, the Lion of Judah, has triumphed. He's got the keys of hell and death in his hands. Jingle, jingle. Okay? Now watch what happens. Look where the Father took him. Get this. When he raised him from the dead and set him at his own right hand in the heavenlies. Now watch. Far above. All principality and power and might. 
and dominion. <laughs> and every name that is named. You think of something left out, you name it. It's above that too. Just in case you get fancy, not only in this world, but in the world to come. That's called high above. <laughs> and just in case you missed the point, he hath put all things under his feet. That is called ruler, ruler indeed. And then read the rest of it. And gave him to be the head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him that filleth all in all. Do you know what that means? Your hair should go boop, straight up. If there are chandeliers here, we should all have a race to the first one to swing on it. Because look on in Ephesians 2. And you hath he made alive who were dead in your trespasses and your sins. In times past you walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the children of disobedience. You were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. And then we had our conversation or our walk in times past in the lusts of the flesh. But God, who is rich in mercy, for his great love wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ, hath made us alive together with Christ. By grace are you saved, and hath raised us up together, and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Do you understand what that means? I hope when you walk out of here, you need a permanent wave to keep your hair down. Because this thing is so powerful, demons hate me teaching on this. Do I understand what it means for Jesus Christ to come in the flesh? It means he came down to lift you up. That's exactly what it means. To put you where in the Father's heart you've always belonged. God has a race of people who will rule the universe underneath him. He is God. They are his creation, but they are the prime of his creation. They are the crown of his creation. They are his ultimate purpose. Bring glory to him more than any other creature in the world. Some years ago, I was in a Midwestern university teaching an astronomy course. My subject was, is there life on other planets, including this one? <laughs> And somebody asked this question, do you think there is life on other planets? I said, there could well be. But I'll tell you one thing. God only had one son, and he died for our race, and he became a man. And the highest crown of all of God's creation is man. And the demons understand that. Do you know why demons go after people? Because the demon knows that to get hold of a man is to get hold of somebody who was created to rule the universe. And the demonic world says, if you serve me, I will give you power. And the truth is exactly the reverse. If you serve a demon, you will give him power. That's why people who get into the demonic world, who seem to be able to do magic things, look so drained and so sucked out because their very energy are being sucked away by these psychic vampires. You give energy to the demonic world when you serve it. 
It's somewhat like the analogy of a dog learning how to rule its master. The angels were created as servants. When they fell, it's like the butlers take over the house. And the one thing they don't like you to know is that Jesus Christ came in the flesh, became a man, to show you what man was like and to show you what God was like. So comes the old adage, not keep looking up, keep looking down. We are seated with him in heavenly places. And a man or woman who properly and correctly understands what this passage teaches in Scripture will never again have to be ashamed of what it means to be a Christian. Now, God never tells people this when they get saved. He doesn't say, step right up, who wants to rule the universe? Because I'll tell you what is really funny. Both the devil and God want the same thing from you from two totally different motives. Satan says you should be like God. God says, I want you to be like me. Isn't that funny? But one of them comes from totally selfish motives and the devil wants to make you like the God which is himself. And God, the Bible God, wants you to make, to make you like he is. And he is a totally loving, totally unselfish being. And Satan is the exact opposite. And both promise that you be like God. Only the devil is thinking the kind of God he is. I'm going to give you a quote from George MacDonald, the man that C.S. Lewis read and got saved. Just reading this guy's work, came across fairy stories, found something in his work that spoke to him about another world that all his atheism couldn't stop. And this is what George MacDonald said. Satan cannot steal the universe until he can steal man. Satan cannot steal the universe until he can steal man because God made man to rule over the universe. And there, friends, is the whole scary thing of the drug world. Not just an addiction, not just a nasty habit that needs to be broken, not just from the simplest form of Habits like cigarettes or drinking to the more deeply addictive forms like heroin or speed or these others. Not just that. The great danger in all of these things is to open your spirit to another world. And that world, is, somebody said, Morton T. Kelsey, there's only one thing more dangerous than entering the spiritual world, and that is not entering it. Because when you don't enter the spiritual world, then it enters you. And I want to walk in under the rulership of God. I want to come in under the king who knows both sides, who's been to hell and back, who knows what heaven and hell look like and can tell me the difference, a dummy who's only lived here on earth. And that's the only way I ever want to explore it. Under nobody else's rulership, under no chemical. Remember Samson? Remember him? Remember what he looked like? We all think he had arms like the rear end of a horse. We always think that, don't we? You know, if you met Samson, he'd look like one of those Russian wrestlers. One of those. There's always uh, they're weightlifters. They're always Russian, except uh, the Christian guy Paul. What's his name? Paul. Uh, Paul Anderson, strongest man in the world. You know, but they're always these big dudes. We always think Samson looked like that. I don't think he. I think he was a weedy little guy. I think Samson looked like me, and a long-haired, weedy little guy. And uh, everybody laughed at him and called him a girl, temporarily at least. And uh, Samson was given 
uh, some commands by God. He had a Nazarite vow, and he's not to cut his hair. And in those days, it wasn't a cool thing to have your hair long. People whistle and call you a girl if you had long hair. But he wasn't allowed to cut his hair, which made people laugh at him for a short time. And uh, the other thing he was to do is he's never to touch any dead things. And the third thing he was to do was to put no chemical in his mouth that would defile his body or inflame his mind. Because Samson's power and Samson's wisdom was to come from the living God himself. And Samson blew it all three ways. All three ways. Touched the dead carcass, the lion trying to get the honey out, went down to parties with the Philistines and drunk their Philistine schlitz. Watch out for the bull. Oh, it's only Samson. And then finally got involved in immorality with Delilah and she cut his hair. Lost his last thing. They burned out his eyes. Made him a slave. Wandering round and round. And God's last act was to restore his energy and he pulled the Philistine kingdom round about their ear. Let's tell you what it is. Samson's a parable of the church today. Blinded and powerless because it's sold out and compromised. Everything God said to do not done. We've done the exact opposite of what God has said. It's lost its vision. It's going round and round in circles. It's bound in immorality. It's chained. And I just pray to God to give us one more chance to pull the Philistines' temples down. Samson's power is to come from another source, not chemical. Not wandering into a world where you have no control, but consciously enter a world under the rulership of God. Saving. Everybody shut your eyes. This is not an invitation. It will be soon, but this is not at this moment. <laughs> you close your eyes. Now imagine if you could never see. You'd never seen in your whole life. You've been blind all your life. Don't cheat. Close your eyes. All right? I'm not going to take a collection. Imagine you've never seen all your life. Now when I count to two, I want you to open your eyes for a brief second and close them again. Remember, you've never seen. You've never seen color. never seen light. Everything in your whole world is just sounds. Okay, I'm going to count to two. Watch, open your eyes just for a second and close them again. One, two. Oh, what was that? Why, that was color. That was light. Now I come to you and I'm a sneaky demon. And I say, how would you like to see all the time? Just imagine what you could do if you could see in a world where nobody else can see. Think of the power you could have. You could go into restaurants and eat. And slip right out and nobody will be able to catch you. Ho, ho, ho. Isn't that a neat thing? Okay, open your eyes. What does my promise mean now to a world that you can see? Nothing at all. And all the devil promises to you are old hat, the Christians, because in the new world everybody can see. The big battle is for your character. You don't be trustworthy or not. You pass the test. Into that kingdom where everybody can see. If you do not, there is no way God will ever open those secrets to you. Let's close in prayer. Our Father, we pray tonight in the name of Jesus that you'll just help us uh, to understand this evening the seriousness of these two things we've spoken about. So many people are lax, especially here in California. Our level of Christian commitment has dropped so low that we believe you wink at things like immorality and the use of drugs. And that it's perfectly compatible with being a Christian. There are Christians, oh God, who break Samson's minimum vows. Just go around 
drinking with all of the Philistines. I believe this is perfectly all right with you. And I pray you'll convict us of any deviation from gospel norm. Bless you, Lord. Do you have ways of making our minds clear and sharp? Do you have ways of giving us wisdom? It doesn't come from chemicals. Do you have ways of loving our hearts and surrounding us with the tremendous warmth of your own self that doesn't require immorality? All right, there's part one of two. The second part, hopefully, coming next week, if I can piece together the two different tapes I've got that make this up. And uh, I hope you en- hope you enjoy this, learn something from this. I know it was pretty powerful. Um, it's it's kind of tough on some people, if uh, at least in the in the heart of the country where I live, because people don't think about a lot of these things. They just take a lot of things for granted that might not be, uh, might not ought to be taken for granted. Uh, but uh, no one ever said this was going to be easy. Um, hope you come back next week to hear the second half. If you want to hear more, uh, the the first two. If you want to hear the first two that we're talking about the counterfeits of, go back to uh, podcast twenty six and twenty seven, I believe it was, and you can uh, hear the hear what God's uh, originals were supposed to be like. And uh, come in, come in again next week. Like I said, hopefully the second part of this two-part series. Go back, go back to the moh.org website if you're looking for materials or videos to watch to uh, help with your your discipleship. And uh, thanks for tuning in to the MOH podcast, and we'll see you next time. <laughs>